Welcome to Into Theology. My name is Wyatt Graham, and I'm joined with Ian Clary, and we're here to discuss John Calvin's Institutes. We're in Book 2, Chapter 16 and 17, the last two chapters of Book 2, and a uh, fascinating couple of chapters. We were just talking about it, and in some ways, we feel like we haven't fully grasped everything Calvin's get, getting at, but we felt that it was a really beneficial couple of chapters to read. Ian, I know you had we had talked about a passage that you might kind of want to read through to kind of open us up. Do you want to introduce it and then talk through it with us? Yeah, what was it we were actually, I don't remember, was it? Uh, the, <laughs> uh, page 505, section three, that first paragraph there. Yeah, this this is this whole kind of discussion where he's talking about how he's trying to trying to like work through the kind of like, how does how does wrath get applied both to us and Christ, and uh, how can he how can he love love us and yet uh, love us before we're actually saved, such that he should be wrathful towards us, um, and uh, so he's going to try to work this whole thing out here in section three. I want to start here right at the very beginning. It says on 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 the bottom of page five hundred five. Um, so although this statement is tempered for our feeble comprehension, so again, more accommodation language, uh, it is not said falsely. For God, who is the highest righteousness, cannot love the unrighteous that he, uh, the unrighteousness that he sees in us all. all. All of us, therefore, have in ourselves something deserving of God's hatred. With regard to our corrupt nature and the wicked life that follows it, all of us surely displease God, are guilty in his sight, and are born to the damnation of hell. But... Because the Lord wills not to lose what is his in us, out of his own kindness, he still finds something to love. However much we may be sinners by our own fault, we nevertheless remain his creatures. However much we have brought death upon ourselves, yet he has created us unto life. Thus he is moved by pure and freely given love of us to receive us into grace. Since there is a perpetual and irreconcilable disagreement between righteousness and unrighteousness, so long as we remain sinners, he cannot receive us completely. Therefore, to take all, away all cause for enmity and to reconcile us utterly to himself, he wipes out all evil in us by the expiation set forth in the death of Christ, that we who were previously unclean and impure may show ourselves righteous and holy in his sight. Uh, it's, it's crazy, right? So he's, he's basically saying here that, yeah, you know, we're born to condemnation of hell. So condemnation is this huge issue in this whole section, right? Um, born into this condemnation, we deserve death and, and all the rest of it. And yet God can still love us. And it seems that that love that he can express to us is due to our creatureliness. And it's our creatureliness because God set us up in a specific way. And he's like, well, I don't want to destroy everything and destroy all the good things that I've put into us as creatures. Mm. So he then somehow maintains, make, makes a way for us to be able to set his love, right? Because Calvin's point is going to be, um, you know, if he hated us, he wouldn't have even planned beforehand to send his son to die because that plan beforehand would have been enacted or even set, you know, in, right. in, in, conceived of in the first place while he was in an active state of hate towards us. So there has to be something even before um, wherein he still loves us. Right. Well, I think that's important. If you go back, uh, like, a, I guess, three pages, um, section two here. On page 504, in the second sentence, he, he says exactly your point. For how could he have given in his only begotten son a singular pledge of his love to us if he had not already embraced us with his free favor? Yeah. So there's already the sense of God has favor to his creation. There's already a sense of a pre-love, for God so loved the world. Yeah. 
yeah, of course he hates the sin. And remember, he says the sin in us or the unrighteousness in us, in us, that in is a key preposition. But what God creates, he loves. Because what does God, the interesting part here is kind of an obvious statement. Like, what does God create? Only good. He created everything. It was very good. Everything he's created is good. We don't create anything. So anything that's bad is, is our own thing. It's our own corruption. Well, God doesn't love corruption. <laughs> he loves goodness. But we don't lose everything that we are in the fall. We still have something of it. And he finds that and loves it. Yeah. So I think that's just really helpful to realize. Um, the other thing you mentioned, accommodation. It might be useful to, to, uh, to note that this is in the same section on page 504, section two here, where he mentions accommodation very clearly once yep. again. After the sentence I read, he says, since therefore some, some sort of contradiction arises here, I shall dispose of this difficulty. The spirit usually speaks in this way in the scriptures. God was men's enemy until they were reconciled to grace by the death of Christ. They were under a curse until their iniquity was atoned for by a sacrifice. They were estranged from God until his body, until through his body they were reconciled. Expressions of this sort have been accommodated to our capacity that we, might, that we may better understand how miserable and ruinous our condition is apart from Christ. For if it had not been clearly stated that the wrath and vengeance of God and eternal death rested upon us, we would scarcely have recognized how miserable we would have been without God's mercy, and we would have under, underestimated the benefit of liberation. Yeah. So in some sense, God accommodates to our capacities by kind of, you know, showing us wrath and vengeance so that we are like, oh, we're afraid of sin and we, we need yeah. your grace. Yeah. Not because that's his pure relation to us. His relation to us is free favor and love in what is ours. But in order that we might be, uh, as, like a, as a pedagogue, as a teacher, we might be drawn to him. Yeah, it draws, us, it draws us to a greater appreciation and yeah. a greater depth of gratitude for this. What he says, you know, we, here we've been underestimating the benefit of our liberation. And he, now what's, what's to happen is, oh, this is actually what I'm being saved from. And so it's to, to ramp up uh, the thankfulness that we'd have to God for it. Well, he makes this very point in a summary on page 505. To sum up, since our hearts cannot in God's mercy either seize upon life ardently enough to accept it with gratefulness, with the gratefulness we owe, unless our minds are first struck and overwhelmed by the fear of God's wrath and by the dread of eternal death and so on. So his point is like, you, uh, basically it almost seems like this fear is the first pedagogue. And then yeah. after that, you see that perfect love casts out all fear. If I, if I'm if I can use Bible words to explain his yeah. point of view. Yeah. I think that might be it. Um, so you have accommodation. Uh, you have the way of reality, the way that we might see God before we're saved is, is kind of fearful. But really, he's using this fear to, to teach us to be grateful for our salvation and in some ways to be drawn to him, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, what, what he hates, I love the, the in there, the unrighteousness in us. He still loves what he created. I think you yeah. might not expect that from Calvin. It's, it's funny how he describes it on top of 507, that very thing. He says, thus in a marvelous and divine way, he loved us even when he hated us. Mm-hmm. He says <laughs> yeah. that one other time or something similar. Yeah. And he, and he says, and these are Augustine's words, right? That, 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 yeah, that's a quote from Augustine. Okay. He loved, that, he loved us when he hated us. For he hated, that, he hated us for what we were that he had not made. Yet because our wickedness had not entirely consumed his handiwork, he knew how at the same time to hate in each one of us what he had made and to love what he had made. <laughs> Lots of Augustine in this passage, in, in this whole section. Um, as, you know, there's parts where I'm like, I, I sort of feel like, Calvin doesn't exactly know how to articulate what he's saying. And so he's like, here, I'll just give you a bunch of Augustine and hopefully that'll come right. things up. <laughs> you know? 
Yeah, and we were talking about, we, we, we do need to check his commentaries to see if he has further explanation. But just, just by way of reminder, um, he wasn't a trained theologian. So sometimes he may not have that theological language other people have and other Reformed people will have to make sense of these things. It doesn't mean that he's not a great and brilliant theologian no. and thinker. It yeah, just means you don't have the right words sometimes. And, and that could be part of what we, what we felt. But again, we got, we got to check his commentaries and so on. Yeah. Still, I love that idea that the freely given love, um, I think it's important to bring up too on page 507, that when Calvin's talking about redemption, he sees it as the whole course of Christ's obedience. And that's his, yeah. uh, by the whole course of his obedience. And in this, uh, the last sentence of the first paragraph of section five on page 507, he says, in short, from the time when he took on the form of a servant, began to pay the price of liberation in order to redeem us. Meaning yeah. his whole incarnate life is for us and for our salvation, which I think um, that is commonplace, but sometimes unremembered by us. Because we think of the cross, it rightly is a climax of salvation, but we maybe forget that everything he did was for us and yeah. for our salvation. Yeah, he is. I mean, because he, he describes him later as this kind of archetype. And yeah. so he, he really has to reenact all of the obedience that is required of us in order, you know, as he's mm -hmm. going to talk about here, merit um, the righteousness that then he'll give to us, right? And all the benefits of it. And so that that has to happen as somebody who comes, as he's going to get into Paul and Galatians, as one who's going to fully, fully satisfy the demands of the law by submitting himself to that law. You know, he shows it with uh, Christ's so obedience in baptism. Why does he undergo baptism? It's because that's what he's supposed to do. He's, he's to obey that command mm -hmm. and, uh, and all that that baptism is going to signify. Um, yeah, it, it, the whole thing is, is remarkable. I mean, e even the way he's going to talk about how like the nature of the death that he has to undergo, it has to be a legal condemnation because we're legally condemned. So that's why Pontius Pilate's so important because as he says in 509, right? Um, the, he goes, you know, the, Goes on to say that the, the the title prefect is mentioned about Pilate not only to affirm the faithfulness of the history, right? So this is a historical thing, um, and he's talking about the creed here, um, but uh, that we may learn that what Isaiah teaches upon him is a chastisement of our peace by his stripes were healed, and um, uh, right below that he'll say if he had been murdered by thieves or slain in an insurrection by a raging mob, in such a death there would have been no evidence of satisfaction of justice. Uh, but when he was arraigned before the judgment seat as a criminal, accused and pressed by testimony, and condemned by the mouth of the judge to die, we know by these proofs that he took the role of a guilty man and evildoer. So, as it, you know, as if to prove the spiritual reality of Christ taking on our judgment before the bar of God's justice, he's now doing that to make it clear to us that this is actually what's happening. Yeah. Right? He wasn't killed by a mob. He was killed by a governor. And that's symbolic of the actual purpose of his death, which I and thought, this, wow, that's really fascinating. This is something we mentioned last week is that Calvin has, it's, at least it seems to be a voluntaristic view of things, meaning mm -hmm. the way in which reality works is the way that God chose it to work in order to, for a particular end. And in this case, he'll mention on page 510 that all the sacrificial stuff, well, I didn't say all there. He says the sacrificial things, expiation, all that was really meant to point towards Christ. Yeah. the archetype of these things. And I think even here, he died under Pontius Pilate because God chose it to be that way in order to teach us something true. Yeah. It is necessary in that sense. That, and just step back for a second and think about the big picture Calvin has here, if we just kind of reflect. He kind of views the whole way that creation is made, the cosmos is formed, 
uh, is really directed upon Christ. Yeah. Even just the way that he dies, according to the Roman legal system, teaches right. you something. Now, I don't know all the thoughts he has there, but I do think these things are connected. Yeah, so however, go on, sorry. Oh, no, I was just going to, on that point then, it's, it's very interesting, as you're saying, like the whole, the whole of, of cosmic history in its grand and in its minute details all pertain to Christ, which makes sense out of Colossians 1, 18. Mm-hmm. Uh, all things are created through him. Um, but isn't that weird then? Because when we think of like, you study classics and you study rise and fall of empires, right? The whole reason then for the Roman Empire yeah. is so that Pontius Pilate can condemn Christ. The whole of the Roman history, you know, Ramus and, you know, all the, you know, the founding of Rome mm-hmm. and the Caesars, all that stuff is for the express purpose that Christ will enter into, the son will enter into human history and be condemned by a, pre, a Roman prefect to demonstrate the nature of the gospel. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I think Jerusalem is where it is between three continents and yeah. then the Roman road system. I think all of it, I mean, in the fullness of time, Paul talks yeah. about Christ died. And there's something too, I think, in God's providence and I think Cal- now Calvin doesn't quite say it the way we are, but it's, it's pretty clear in all that he's saying, even the fact of how he died by Pontius Pilate just fits with God's will. Yeah. In fact, all the, like earlier, he says very clearly, all the old Testament stuff is just meant to uh, draw our minds upward. It's meant yeah. to point to Christ. Yeah. I think you would say all, but it's very comprehensive, if not the word all. Um, yeah. So it's, it's pretty amazing. By the way, I have to bring up a sentence I think is really, uh, it may be a controversial sentence, but an interesting one. So page 511, oh, yeah. the oh, last yeah. sentence of section six, right before section seven, oh, this yeah. is this. Yet Christ's shed, uh, sorry, yet Christ's shed blood served not only as a satisfaction, yeah. but also as a laver to wash away our corruption. Yeah. So in other words, this isn't actually controversial, but I think a lot of times we really tightly separate uh, justification and sanctification. Uh, he, he's here kind of tying them together. Later theologians piece out how that works, but I think that's a really interesting note that his death both satisfies uh, our, what we need so we're forgiven, but also washes us. Yeah, yeah, it's a washing away of our corruption. Yeah. Anyways, it's not a huge point. I thought it was interesting. I think sometimes yeah. we divide those too much, even though you kind of need to when you think through it. Um, I, I like too how this whole thing, uh, this whole latter part, uh, he's basically just riffing off the Apostles' Creed. You know, oh, like, yeah. He's just he basically just says, well, the creed just kind of forms these things that I want to talk about in a very simple way for the people to understand. Mm. And uh, and so then all all this latter part, including the pilot stuff, but then everything is all about you know Christ's crucifixion, the death and burial. His whole his whole discussion of the descent clause is fascinating. We should probably get into that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, but it's important, right? I mean, the the, the initial uh, version, the first published version of the Institutes, was framed around the Creed, right? And mm. so, Creed is still here. I like how he get, he calls it the so-called Apostles' Creed. He thinks he thinks it's got a very early authorship, but probably not the Apostles themselves. Um, and uh, and he and he recognizes the importance of of maintaining all of the particulars of the Creed too, including the Descent Clause. Yeah, so, well, he mentioned all these things, uh, Christ is Victor, all the kind of views, uh, but then he does get to the ascent here, and wh- why don't you talk about that just briefly? What, how does, where does he land on the descent? Well, what is the descent and how does he land? Maybe that's a better way to put it. Yeah, he, he, so the descent clause is that statement that he descended into hell or descended into the grave or however we want to translate that. 
Um, and so he, he, he recognizes the various interpretations of, of the dissent clause. He spends a long time uh, from, what is it, page 512 in our two-volume set, uh, all the way to, what do we got? Um, I guess he's going right on to, my goodness. Like 516 or? Yeah, something like that. Anyway. Um, and so he has a, he takes it, but he takes a differing view than the way the tradition is normally understood. Mm. Um, I was really helped by, and I, I know I owe you a book review on this, but the gospel yeah, publisher website. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it's a super helped by Matthew Emerson's new book. Um, is it called? He descended, to the, he descended to the Dead or something is what it's called. Really great book on the descent clause in history. And, um, and Emerson, I, I held Calvin's view up until reading Emerson's book. Um, so the the history of of the uh, of the Christian tradition basically held to the, the idea that the realm of the dead has two parts: paradise, which Jesus tells the thief on the cross, "We'll be there together uh, after we die," and then uh, there's Hades, and they're kind of they're linked, but there's a separation between these two aspects of the realm of the dead. And so when Christ dies, his body goes into the grave, and then his rational soul goes down to paradise. When he goes into that part of, of the realm of the dead, he sanctifies it, um, and then he declares his victory over death. When he starts to raise, be raised up, he goes back up. They all in the realm of the dead see him go back up to the grave. His soul goes to, up to the grave at the beginning of his ascension and his resurrection, and then um, he's reunited and comes out of the grave. And so then that the paradise is sanctified, and then he declares his victory over death to those in Hades. And, uh, and so that's how we understand the realm of the dead. Calvin is like, well, the language of burial in the creed makes it superfluous if we say then that he died, uh, that, he, that his soul died, or that his body died and his soul went to the realm of the dead. So it can't merely be that, but he's, he's misunderstood what the, that there's a distinction between burial and that he descended into hell. Um, he doesn't actually take, he doesn't see it as it going into the realm of the dead. Uh, paradise. So he thinks that the, that view is a redundant view, but it's actually not. Matt Emerson shows that. Um, and so Calvin then takes it, which is what I would have believed when I recite the creed, uh, is that the descent into hell is actually Christ in his substitutionary atonement, taking the punishments of hell on himself for us. Because that's what hell is, right? Hell is the ultimate fulfillment of the, of the punishments for the breaking of the covenant. And, uh, and that's wrath. And so Calvin does that on the cross for us where he receives hell. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that's an anomaly. And so he then influences aspects of the reformed tradition that way. Um, but up until that point, that was not an yeah. understanding. So really, and I think, I mean, that's a really helpful summary. I mean, there's, there's a lot there. And I think a simple way you can put it is, did Christ go to Sheol and bring the saints of old to the uh, heavenly Zion at that time. I mean, Hebrews 11, 12 looks like it. Or, or in Calvin's view, does he uh, descend to hell in the sense of feel the hellish punishment, right? Yeah. So yeah. it's either those two things. I, I think you're right. I mean, I think that's what Christians have, believe some version of what you just said anyways. I mean, it's diverse as Calvin notes. And it's interesting in Calvin's own view, some of it, it doesn't actually quite fit in my mind the way that he articulates it. Because earlier yeah. he did say, wrath is sort of an accommodation towards us. And then he says on page uh, 517 uh, about the cry of dereliction, yet, yet we do not suggest that God was ever, in, uh, in, oh boy, I can't pronounce that word. How do you pronounce that word? 
In Which word? Expiatory? No, before angry. So <laughs> this the sixth sentence on the top of page 517. That God was ever inimical? Oh, inimical. Yeah, yeah. Inimical? Okay. Man, I, I'll have to learn new words here. Yet we do not say that God's ever inimical or angry towards him or toward yeah. him. How could he be angry toward his beloved son whom his heart reposed? And so the point is, and then he goes on to say a little bit lower, um, by God's hand, he experienced all the signs of a wrathful and avenging God. I kind of summarized it. So the signs of it, the signs of the accommodated signs of wrath and anger that yeah. we see so we know what's actually happening. Well, what's happening is that Christ, it looks like according to Calvin, Christ is receiving the penalty of sin, which is death. But to know that he's receiving the penalty of, of sin and death, it has to be characterized by anger and wrath. That's how we're taught. Right. And so God wasn't truly angry at the son at any time. The father was never angry at the son at any time. He says in a different place as well. But rather, these signs are there for our sake and for us to understand what is actually happening at the cross. So it's kind of an interesting view. And it, it almost it, doesn't quite fit with um, the descent clause in his view. Yeah, the whole thing is just, it, it's, a lot of this is strange to me. I, I, I need to think more about this because... You know, it seems like he's, he's saying on one hand about us, right? He's like, well, he hates us, but he doesn't hate us because of how we were created. He doesn't want to get rid of all that stuff, but he does hate us because of our sin. And then he's saying at the same time, like Christ takes on the, he's always, it, it pains to make the point that he's taking the condemnation for our sin, but he never says that Christ actually takes on real sin in a real way, which is well, where I have the, the power where, and curse of the, of uh, sin, right? On page, yeah. um, Page 510, section six. Yeah. So it's really weird then. So then God's angry with, well, he punishes the son in, in, in his flesh, you know, Jesus of Nazareth. He's punished. The signs God, of punishment. Right, right. But it's like, he's not really angry with him, but he's punishing him. And, uh, right. So he says at top 517 that the father doesn't really hate the son, right? So as you said, not, not suggest that he's ever inimical or angry towards him. How could he be angry towards his beloved son in whom his heart reposed, right? So he can't be angry at the son. And yet then in another, then he's quoting Hillary right after that. And, uh, you know, the cross, death, hell, these are our life. And in another place, the son of God is in hell, but man is born up to heaven. I don't, I'll be honest, I don't know how it works. I don't know how he's putting it all together. Because the way I conceive it in my, mind, in my mind is that by, and he talks about the imputation of sin to Christ, right. but like, that means then that Christ really becomes these things. That's why he's really being punished in real flesh. Um, and that's a real wrath. And, uh, and so then, so that, that we don't have to really be punished in our flesh. And, uh, and so it's, it's, it's really strange that he doesn't want to get to this point where Christ is actually being, but I get it, you know, he's like, but how could he, how could the son, he says here, like, uh, how could the son actually then make intercession and appease the father towards us if you were actually hateful to God. So I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. Because well, I think, a, oh, sorry. How could it be an acceptable things. sacrifice if, the, right. if God hated the son? Because then he'd hate the sacrifice and it wouldn't be acceptable. Right. I think a couple things are important. Remember, God doesn't hate any nature. What he hates is the unrighteousness in us. Yeah. So I think he can love the son and, and sort of hate the unrighteousness in him that's imputed to him. I think that's, that's clear. I also think that the whole voluntarism thing is, is in the background here. Yeah. God created reality in such a way that the, the quality of this death has to look vengeful, has all the signs of vengeful, vengefulness and punishment for us to understand what it is and for it to be what it does, because God chose it to be this way. And so I, I guess, I mean, I know I'm not answering all the questions, but I think that's, I think that's a big part of it. I think that's what yeah. lies behind his thinking. And, and, and it's worth mentioning, 
you never want to say that the, that the person of the father is angry at the person of the son. Right. You cannot Especially. be a Christian and say that. No. Yeah, so then you're, you're, you're making a division within the Godhead. Yeah. It's, I mean, you can be a Christian. I mean, you can't have a Christian Orthodox right. statement and say that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it's, I think what he's trying to do is balance these things. I think maybe it's possible that he's not completely coherent in his thought. <laughs> I think it's, he's a human, right? He's not, not, not God. Yeah. Um, it does make sense to me what he's doing. I, I, I see it more in this voluntaristic point of view than maybe you do. And so I, I kind of, think that he doesn't have to justify things metaphysically like Thomas might. What he has to do is justify it according to God's plan. Right. Yeah, because that makes sense. Thomas is an intellectualist, so things have to make sense. With a voluntarist, you know... Um, it's it God's will. Right. It is. It just you submit to God's will in it. Um, it's, uh, and it's interesting, too. Like, he's, he's obviously operating out of this, this idea of God is love. So the essence of God is love here. Because mm-hmm. if you really to take that seriously, to preserve... The, the love of God is kind of fundamental um, then because, because what happens in, in, especially in modern theology, um, you get some theologians like uh, there's a Japanese theologian named Kitamori and, uh, and he actually following kind of like Moltmann's approach will actually argue that the essence of God is wrath um, because the cross you have to, because of the oh, theology, oh, yeah, yeah. theology of the cross, you have to look and, and interpret everything through the cross. Well, the cross is where God needs out his wrath. And so then you're, so then that actually puts back into God's essence, but, wrath, but you can't wow. do it. Is, is yeah. wrath even an attribute of God? <laughs> That's the whole thing. I don't understand it that way. I, I understand wrath is actually a manifestation of love, right? right? Um, in as much well, as like... Says, remember, all the, all the pun, like all the stuff in history, these are how God kind of drawing us, loving us, showing us to, to appreciate salvation. Yeah, uh, we need to probably pick one more topic and then yeah, we're answer. running out of time here. <laughs> so, so chapter seventeen, there's a, there's a number of things. I think he's head where the body union with Christ here, uh, the cosmic body of Christ. I think is really central for Calvin. I think sometimes we don't talk about it as much as we ought to. Union with Christ, the body of Christ, because he's head, we have all the benefits of head to body by the Spirit. I think he'll talk about that. In fact, in the very next chapter uh, of book three, yeah. first chapter of book three. Is there anything in here that you wanted to touch on? I mean. God's love. Yeah, there's so much God's funny stuff. Like he, so he's going to go through right at the end of 16 there. He's going to talk about the resurrection, then the ascension. And then he's going to say, this was another thing I found curious, is that the, the ascension, he says on 5.23, is really like fulfills the promise that he gives in the Great Commission that, lo, I'll be with you always. And that happens at the ascension because then Christ, when he ascends to this, he sits at the right hand of the Father, wherein now he rules and reigns and governs. And so his presence is felt, though there's an absence of his body, his presence is felt uh, by majesty. And I've always understood the promise that his presence, I will be with you always, is through the spirit who gets poured out. And so he's saying, no, 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 Christ's presence, that's the fulfillment of that promise in the Great Commission, is actually his majesty that is being felt. Uh, So he says right at the bottom of 14, Therefore, we always have Christ according to the presence of majesty, but of his physical presence, it was rightly said to his disciples, you will not always have me with you. But the church had him in his bodily presence for a few days. Now it holds him by faith, but does not see him with eyes. And that's him quoting Augustine uh, commentary on John. There's another one where I was like, okay, um, so we have that presence. The spiritual presence. So like footnote 36, that quote, maybe that's what you just read. I think spiritual presence, I think is, is capital S spiritual yeah but interesting and then, so then you get the ascension and then and then in 17 you get all this discussion mm. of merit 
Uh, and, uh, and so that, you know, Christ merits these things, not for himself, as you'll say at the end, or for his own benefits. Yep. Uh, but yeah, these things are all for us so that he can dispense these things to us. You know, the obedience yep. gets reconciliation, which grants merit, which then uh, is, is acquired by us. Um, so, I mean, and then he gets into that whole thing about paying the price of our redemption uh, in order to make that merit happen. Yeah. At 532, 533, I think this is maybe what I was remembering earlier, but it uh, really seems like the penalty is death here. Yeah. The price for satisfaction is death. Um, well, there's a lot more we could say. I think this might be a good place to stop. We've, we've talked a lot. You can read this yourself. There's a lot here. It's one, of these, it's one of these two chapters where I felt like it's possibly partly Calvin's way of writing where it seems a little bit unspecific sometimes. But it's also his pursuit of brevity, right? He wants to, yes, that's why, as you're saying, you know, like checking into like, if he gives a proof text for something that he says fairly quickly, the responsible thing to do now would be to pull that right. commentary where that proof text is referring to and see him extend his argument there. Yeah, exactly. But nonetheless, I, I do feel like uh, it, it almost sometimes it just seems like things are necessary because they are because God said they were and there's a Bible yeah. verse that proves it. That's how it felt to me just from this text, not from the commentaries. And I wonder if that's just because he lives in all sorts of worlds, but he kind of weighs heavy on this idea that God's decree is the way things are. So yep. things are necessary if they fit his decree. Yeah. Um, he doesn't yeah, say he it talks about, like He that. talks about ordination, right? Is the first, where is that, that language of first cause on 529? Yeah, right? that's... So um, it's like, it's about, half, almost, it's about almost halfway 529, down. 529, section two. Yeah, 529. He says, in discussing Christ's merit, we do not consider the beginning of merit to be in him. But we go back to God's ordinance or ordination, the first cause, right? So Christ doesn't have his own, his merit within himself. I'm, I'm taking that to be his human nature here. Um, but the, but it's the, the merit, the beginning of it actually happens back in his, in God's ordination things. Mm -hmm, interesting. You know, oh, for oh, God solely of his own good pleasure, right? Yeah. Um, so there's that language again, appointed him mediator to obtain salvation for us. Yeah, you're right. That's kind of the volunteerism language. In section two, it's uh, some of the cause language. So it seems to be that's what he's getting at. Um, there's a, some there's a rich diversity in the Reformed tradition where where you have more of the intellectuals intellectualist approach. I think that kind of takes over at the end of the 16th century, and I think that it, we get a little bit more tighter on some of how and why these things work rather than just that they do. And uh, so that's good. I mean, Lord's gifted us all in different ways. So we have parts and pieces everywhere. So Calvin's one <laughs> part of the cog. Um, I think, I can't remember the, ch uh, next week we're going to begin book three. I can't remember yeah. how many chapters we do. I have to double check the, the reading plan, but I'm excited. I think this has a lot to do with the Holy Spirit. We're kind of, yeah. book one is Father the Creator. Book two is Christ. Book three is the Holy Spirit. Book four is uh, the church. And really that follows the, the creeds, yeah. right? Father, Son, Spirit, Church, uh, the extended yeah, body of Christ. This is all going to be really cool, super encouraging stuff that's that's coming, you know, um, in book three. Um, so it's going to be good. Yeah, we're going to learn why Calvin's associated with a, as being a theologian of the Holy Spirit. So I'm excited for that.